0: Welcome to Putting Up Numbers, the podcast about uniform numbers. I'm Tom Davis here in the City of Angels. And joining me from Big D, from Pacific to Atlantic, there's a panic for the Clanic. It's Rudy Klanek. Rudy, we have something special today. What is it?
1: Well, we have a special interview. We've already done, as all of our faithful listeners know, we've already done the number 10. In fact, the number 10 was our first ever podcast with the greatness of Ron Say. But we had an opportunity to interview Nancy Lieberman, the greatest female basketball player and coach and speaker, as we've quickly <laughs> learned. She's a phenomenal interview, and we just didn't want to pass up that opportunity, even though she obviously wore the number 10 growing up being a super fan of Walt Frazier. So we didn't want to pass that up. We want to jump in.
0: Yeah, spoiler alert. She is going to critique our Hall of Fame list of number 10s. Yep.
1: Yeah, it was a great interview. Really fun to talk to her. She's a wealth of information and knowledge and just some great stories. So looking forward to that in a little bit. But I know you had a little addendum to our number 10 podcast. So why don't you let it rip?
0: Sure. Let's call this, just for sake of clarity, Rudy, let's call this podcast 10 Extra. Yeah. And so we went back and looked at number 10s that we had talked about in the podcast. And there were two guys that weren't mentioned who probably should have been. One was Ron Santo. And Ron Say actually had a story about Ron Santo because they're both from Washington. Yeah, We just cut it for time. But Ron Santo, number 10, is retired by the Cubs. It was actually retired on August 10th of 2011. Yet Dave Kingman and Leon Durham also were number 10 before he got it retired. And he has the distinction of being the first player in MLB history to wear a batting helmet with ear flaps. So he deserves Amazing. credit for that as well. So Ron Santo needs a mention, as does Chris Chambliss. Chris Chambliss, 17-year career with the Indians, Yankees, and Braves. He also wore number 14 and number 50, but I think he's best known for wearing number 10 with the Yankees and hitting a walk-off home run in Game 5 of the 1976 ALCS against the Kansas City Royals. And that home run, Rudy, actually inspired something called the Chris Chambliss Rule. If you guys remember that home run, Yankee fans just poured out onto the field. And so Chris Chambliss was running around the bases and running over fans, and they were trying to pat him on the back. And mayhem just ensued, so much so that Chambliss never touched home plate. He uh, finally abandoned his trip around the bases and ran to the safety of the clubhouse. When he got there, Greg Nettles, the third baseman, longtime third baseman of the Yankees, asked him if he ever touched home plate. And he said, no, I never did. I couldn't get there. And so they said, well, we have to find the home plate umpire and get back out there and you have to touch home plate. Otherwise, Whitey Herzog, who was the manager of the Royals at the time could protest the game. And so they all went back out there and all the bases had been stolen. So (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So he he wasn't able to touch home plate because home plate was in somebody's car on the way back through the Holland Tunnel or something to that effect. (laughs) But the Chris Chambliss rule is that an umpire can award a run even if the batter can't touch home plate. So Chris Chambliss deserves a little bit of love. Now, Rudy, I understand you've got a note on number zero and something that's happening in college football. What's the story there?
1: Well, we've got some breaking Jersey number news. Actually, it broke in February, but who cares? You know what? It's (laughs) August. It's all right. So we got some numbers news on the number zero. So for the first time, we're going to see in college football Number zero's running around this season. The NCAA approved adding the number zero because they're trying to limit how many times players have the same number on the same team. So to help with that, the NCAA has allowed schools to use the number zero. So, so far in my uh, research, I've discovered five young men who are switching to number zero. There's going to be more. You know there's going to be more. An incoming freshman... At the University of Michigan, Tom, is wearing number zero. His name is Andre Seldon. He's going to play cornerback for the Wolverines. Now, Giles Jackson. Just to confuse matters more is a receiver for Michigan, and he's going to wear zero. So that kind of defeats the purpose of the whole rule, right? <laughs> <Pretty> ridiculous.
0: <laughs> well, that and the fact that no one from Michigan is playing anything, so it's doesn't all it matter. <laughs> uh, in the land of theoretical. <laughs> doesn't, anyway. doesn't matter,
1: but oh uh, yeah, Andre Seldon wearing zero, Giles Jackson wearing zero. I think zero works with a cornerback, a shutdown cornerback, right? Kind of boldly proclaims nothing's going to get by him. For other players, not so much. Uh, Tariq Black, who's actually a transfer receiver from Michigan, now at the University of Texas, he is going to go with zero another transfer Marcel Brooks who's a defensive back with he was with LSU last year he's now at TCU in Fort Worth he's going to go zero and Bryce Thompson uh, a defensive back for the University of Tennessee is the first volunteer to go zero where the number zero so interesting news on the jersey front and college football we'll be seeing zeros when we do see college football we'll be seeing zeros run around
0: i love that i think zero is cool i think double zero is super yep. cool if you remember you know the jim otto ken burrow days Absolutely. in the nfl way back when I, i'm i'm excited about that i think it's yep. actually really really cool
1: I think it's cool. Yeah, kids will love it. The number one's always obviously been a sought-after number at some schools. It's a special number. Most schools it is, but uh, I think the number zero is going to be a favorite for probably receivers and cornerbacks.
0: Yeah, and actually, Rudy, I have some number 10 news, just to to jerk the old uh, podcast back into number 10 land. So we've got some late-breaking NFL news, uh, which again was several months ago, but if it's news, it's news to us, right? Rookies Jordan Love and Justin Hurst. Herbert uh, of the Packers and Chargers, respectively, are wearing number 10, as they did in college. And Jerry Judy, a wide receiver from Alabama who were number four at Alabama, is wearing number 10 with the Denver Broncos. Also, number 10 from the Hall of Fame list, Eli Manning, is having a double retirement. He's having his number 10 retired at Ole Miss, and he's having his number 10 retired by the Giants. And that's just a taste, right, Rudy? I mean, we've got way more information coming as early as next week to get you ready for the NFL season. We've got a whole number extravaganza. About the NFL, am I right?
1: Yeah, we've got a special jersey number preview. There's fantasy football, there's gambling odds, there's just your straight up preview, but we don't care about that stuff, man. We're going to dig in, focus on jersey number news coming out of the NFL to get you guys ready for the season that is almost upon us.
0: Yes. Oddly enough, the NFL season starts on September 10th. And speaking of number 10, Nancy Lieberman.
1: You know, she is a, a mainstay here in a Dallas-Fort Worth area. I've heard her speak publicly several times. She's awesome, man. She can hold a group of kids, hold a group of adults captive for an hour and a half, and you will not be bored. And we were not bored during this interview.
0: Yeah. First woman to coach a men's professional team in any league was an assistant for a time with the Sacramento Kings yep. and also the big three with Corey Maggette and Katino Mobley on her team. And she She chats a little bit about that in the interview. Yeah, it was great talking with her. And that is really going to be the majority of what this podcast is about. is just Nancy's interview because we enjoyed it so much. And hopefully you will as well. Here's Rudy, myself, and the great Nancy Lieberman. It's hard to understate the impact Nancy Lieberman has had on the game of basketball. A true pioneer as a player, coach, and broadcaster. She's a two-time national champion in college, an Olympic medalist, a WNBA veteran as both a player and a coach. She was the first female in history to be the head coach in a men's professional league. She's also been an assistant with the Sacramento Kings and won a championship as a head coach in the Big Three. She's now a broadcaster with the New Orleans Pelicans, and if there's a Hall of Fame, she's in it. That includes the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame, the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, and many, many others. She earned the nickname Lady Magic by honing her skills at New York's legendary Rucker Park and wore number 10 in honor of Knicks legend, Walt Frazier. Her career has been discussed and celebrated on this very podcast, and so we're glad she's joining us today. Nancy Lieberman, welcome to Putting Up Numbers.
2: Well, how are you guys? It's good to be on the show.
0: As I mentioned, when we did our podcast about number 10, we left the soccer guys off because the soccer number 10 thing is a whole separate kettle of fish. So this was the Hall of Fame list that we came up with. Number five, Guy Lafleur. Number four, Eli Manning. Number three was shared by Walt Frazier and Nancy Lieberman because of the Walt Frazier and Nancy Lieberman connection. Number two was Chipper Jones. Number one was Fran Tarkenton. Are you satisfied with your place on that list?
2: Oh, I think Walt Frazier's ahead of Fran Tarkenton. And I like Mr. Scramble himself and enjoyed him, especially when he was a New York Giant. But if you, I think, went out on the streets and says Fran Tarkenton or, you know, Walt Frazier, I think people would say Walt Frazier. But I'm biased, obviously.
0: So, Rudy, we were wrong is basically the You're upshot wrong. of that on, of that answer. <laughs> yeah, well, no,
1: that's good. That's good. I like that. that's That's pretty authentic feedback from... uh Somebody that wore the number because of Walt. What was the first time you grabbed number 10, Nancy? What was the first number 10 for you?
2: Well, high school, I got number 10. And then on my first time, 1974 at the USA tryouts, 75, 76. I was on the Pan American team in high school, my junior and senior year. And I had to have number 10. And throughout college, Rucker Park, any league that I played in, I have always been number 10 from when I played for Pat Riley and the Lakers in 1980 in their summer league. It didn't matter. You could put me anywhere in the locker room, but I was like, I need to have number 10. That was a great conversation with Jerry West when he called me at my home in New York and said, Dr. Buss and I would like to have you come play for the Lakers. We have a new young coach who's going to use summer league to get experience. And that was Pat Riley. And uh, Paul Westhead was the coach of the Lakers. They had just gotten magic. And I was like, you know, I'm not like a big fan of yours or anything because you hit that half court shot. And, you know, uh, Willis Reed tried to block it. And he went, what? (laughs) I said, you know, in the championship against the Knicks and Lakers. And I said, I'll come out there if I can get number 10. And he was like, you're going to play for the Lakers because you want number 10? I was like, yeah. It was pretty, it
1: was pretty wrong, Real. Yeah, it's pretty important to I like your devotion to number 10. We've talked to some folks that they lost their number because, you know, somebody else had it on a team they got traded to or free agent or whatever. But you've stuck to it pretty, pretty tight. Well, I, I
2: did. You know, obviously, early in my career, that was very important to me. Any athlete worth their soul is connected. They sign their name and they put their number. It's like the identity of who you, who, who you become. And for me, number 10 was everything because it just gave me something to believe in, something to strive for. You know, th- we're talking about the, the 60s and 70s. So there was no Title IX. There was no gender equity. There was no WNBA. So my heroes were men. Walt Frazier, Willis Reed, Dr. J., And of course, Muhammad Ali. So it was just a different time. And 10, I remember the first time I met Walt Frazier after I graduated from Old Dominion in 1980. And we had just won two championships. We go 125 and 14. We win the NIT. You know, we were UConn and Tennessee before UConn and Tennessee. And so I'm going back to New York to this beautiful charity event. And they go, yeah, it's you and Walt Frazier. And I was like, ah. Well, Frazier, you know, I used to take their ter- transistor radio and hide underneath the covers. And my mother would go, are you sleeping listening to Marv Albert? And I go, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to hear the late John Condon say, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the magic world of Madison Square Garden Center. Tonight, your New York Knicks are taking on the Boston Celtics. In the backcourt for your Knicks is number 10, Walt Frazier, and number 10, a. Nancy Lieberman. <laughs> and I, I used to dream yeah. that. And yeah. I re- remember telling him that story. I was so embarrassed that I left. And about an hour later, I came back and said, look, I apologize because you were my hero. And you you didn't even know you were affecting a little white Jewish kid who happened to be a girl's life. But you did. And I'm here. And thank you. And, you know, because to him, I was Nancy Lieberman, you know, at, from Old Dominion. To me, I was a a 10-year-old, just like, oh, my God, Walt Frazier.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. (laughs) It was embarrassing. That's (laughs) awesome.
0: Now, Nancy, Walt Frazier and I are alums of the same institution of higher learning, the Harvard of the Midwest, Southern Illinois University. Walt Frazier wore number 52 at SIU. So you could have been number 52. How do you feel about? potentially having a whole career number 52 does that fit for you
2: i haven't given it much thought but if you would like i'd be more than happy to call walt right now and discuss that <laughs> the history. we've actually become friends over the last 100 years or so and <laughs> i just adore him and um he's an amazing guy but the the 52 kind of that's that's not my that's not my thing
1: yeah that's awesome that's awesome what a great answer So I heard you speak once and you had a great story. I think a parent asked you for some advice, like, what's the best way you probably hear this all the time. What's the best way to get my kid ready to play basketball at the next level? And you had the greatest answer. You said to uh, take him to the nearest park or the inner city uh, basketball court, give him some high tops and a basketball. And then come back and pick them up about eight hours later. That was a good, I always thought that was the best advice. Does that advice still stand? It actually
2: does. That's what I did to my son, TJ. That's why he won't talk to me today, no. Um, (laughs) But it changed his basketball career. And and right now, TJ just turned 26. He's a professional basketball player. He just signed for a team in uh, Northern Italy. And, you know, he played two summer leagues with the Milwaukee Bucks. So TJ was 14 years old. So I called my friend, David Britton from New York. We used to play at Rucker all the time because I started playing at Rucker at 11, 12 years old. And I said, David, I want TJ to play in the hood. And he goes, no. I said, yes. And so he goes, okay, bring them down. To Desoto, and I bring TJ, and one day, and I go, "Hey, I got you on AAU team." He goes, "Oh, great!" And he opens the door, and they're dunking and hanging on the rim. And he comes back to the car, and he goes, "Mom." those guys are like dunking and hanging from the rim. I said, I know, go in there. They're your teammates. Go say hi to them. And <laughs> right. it was the coolest thing because like it, today, you know, 10 years later, like one of his besties is Chris Washburn Jr. Huh. And Chris put him under his wing. And that's just how I felt because that's how I grew up. And uh, you know, the, the, the black community championed me and made me better. They celebrated me. They didn't tolerate me at Rucker because yeah. it was all about street cred and respect. And I knew the loyalty that that community would have with TJ. And it's been amazing his relationships and how he cares uh, about his friends. that might not look like him really. If everybody in the world could see like our relationships, people that look different think different, but we love each other and we'll take bullets for each other.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Speaking of relationships, you mentioned Walt Frazier already, but you've had relationships, longstanding relationships with some of the greatest athletes of all time. LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Muhammad Ali. When you think of those people who are just your friends, is there something that you can put your finger on as to what drove them all to be as great as they were?
2: Yeah, they were all chasing greatness every day. It was a mindset You have to see it, say it, to be it. You have to see yourself being on the Olympic team in high school. You have to say it. I can be on this team. So it's it's mental. If you don't believe in you, why should anybody else believe in you? Trust me, there's been a lot of Nancy Camp moments in life. I'm sure the same for LeBron and for Kobe and, and for Muhammad. But the one thing that we had in common was that belief system and that willingness to outwork people. I miss Muhammad and I miss Kobe every day and uh, when i played in the WNBA at 50 i think it was 2008 or so i played on a saturday with detroit and then i was doing tv for espn it was van gundy and mark jackson and myself we finished interviewing the coaches and i'm walking down the hall and all of a sudden kobe goes hey i need 15 minutes and i'm like okay so we sat in a room and he was like why did you play my wife and daughter watched you Why would you put your reputation on the line? What did you eat? How did you feel? Who trained you? How did you train? I felt like I was in a think tank. (laughs) And, you know, the the reigning MVP and and champion of the NBA was asking a 50-year-old white woman, why? Because he's the most curious person I've really ever been around. And he respected everybody. And he used to call me, like when we would talk over time, he would call me the mama mamba. And, you know, I don't think I would have ever shared that with anybody Until us losing him, Mm. but you know, like Ali, you know, Ali taught me respect everybody, uh, but fear nobody. I'm I'm not afraid to play in the NBA. I'm not afraid to play against NBA guys. You might kick my ass, but I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to coach in the NBA. I'm not afraid to coach in the Big Three or wherever you put me. I have a responsibility to be prepared and to do the best that I can but fear is not an option.
0: That's
1: a great answer. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Well, speaking of coaching, uh, I wanted to ask you, it's not if, it is when a woman becomes a head coach at the NBA level, maybe the NFL level. What is that going to mean? And how important is it that a second woman becomes a head coach in the NBA or the NFL level? What, What are your thoughts on that?
2: The most important thing is you have to have an opportunity. If Branch Rickey didn't believe in Jackie Robinson, then there's no barrier that somebody is going to be able to break. And honestly, there are women that will be coaching in the NBA. Becky Hammond is on track. She's had a great mentor in Coach Popovich. And it was really Donnie Nelson that I will say this anytime I get interviewed. Donnie Nelson was the one who put the bug in the NBA's ear because when he hired me in 2010 to coach the legends, He was in, to be a head coach, uh, he was in with two feet, not two toes. And it was amazing. I wanted so bad to be successful for Donnie and our players. And we were an expansion team. And when we made the playoffs that first year, it was pretty cool to be able to, to just show people. And, you know, uh, Nick Nurse, I coached against Nick, you know, uh, Nate Tibbetts, who's on Terry Stotts' staff. Nate Osborne is on Terry's staff. Chris Finch, who's Alvin Gentry's assistant, or, you know, when, uh, of course, Alvin got let go from the Pelicans. Darvin Ham, who's Coach Bud's assistant in Milwaukee. And th- these guys were so amazingly protective of me. I mean, we wanted to kick each other's behind. But they, they also re- were so respectful. It w- is really amazing t- to tell you that that group of men helped mold and mentor me because they knew there was extraordinary pressure. So when the, the head of the NBA, the greatest commissioner in sports, Adam Silver, says that we want a female head coach sooner or later, it's going to happen. It's just going to take somebody to have the strength like Donnie Nelson did or Ice Cube did you know, when Ice Cube hired me and I asked him, I said, were you we checking a box? I mean, what? why me? And he says, no, I think you can win. And that's what I wanted to hear. And when we won the championship at Barclays Center in 2018, in front of 17, 18,000 people and millions of people on Fox, and he was handing us that trophy. It was one of the most rewarding things because I had the greatest athletes in- Corey Maggetti, Cattino Mobley, Big Baby Davis, Quentin Richardson, Birdman. I had amazing men, but I had a job to do. And I wanted it was almost like a thank you to Ice Cube for entrusting me and believing in me, which then opened the door for Lisa Leslie. Right. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, you know, Becky knows that, you know, she she needs to be successful because it'll take doubt away from other people going, ah, they can't do it. No, we can do
0: it. Nancy, speaking of coaching, we're making an all-female version of Space Jam. You're the head coach, and you can put five female players on the floor with the future of mankind in the balance. Okay. Who are you putting on the floor?
2: I'm putting uh, Lisa Leslie on the floor, Cheryl Miller on the floor, Diana Taurasi on the floor. I can't play, but I can coach, right?
0: You can coach, yeah. Okay,
2: Diana Tarasi on the floor. I'm putting Shamiqua claw out there. All she knows how to do is win. And I'm going to put my buddy, Ann Myers, out there at the point yes. guard position. So you got players that all at some level won championships. You want winners. And to be Bugs Bunny, you have to have <laughs> people who are committed. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you, well said. Well said. Uh, so, I think I would go see that movie, Rudy. I don't know about you. I'm in. Nancy, it's, does it, anybody get to wear number ten?
2: Uh, yeah. If they want to wear number ten, not bugs. Okay. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going down that rabbit hole. Okay. No. Uh, okay. Not okay. with okay. Bugs Bunny. Okay. Uh, Nicely done. But thank you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if somebody wanted to wear ten, and of course, I mean, if I'm coaching, if I'm playing, no, that's mine.
1: I'm. I think player coach is probably more likely. I don't think he stay <laughs> off the floor. <laughs> I think he check in late in the fourth quarter. <laughs>
2: yeah, I know. And yeah, I got the respirator. And I'm like,
1: oh yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, your day job, uh, your, your team that you follow, your team you work for did not make the bubble, but they are exciting, super exciting. The future looks bright. And, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Zion like everybody else. Tell me what's his ceiling and and what's going to be his biggest obstacles that that are in his way in the next couple of years? The
2: biggest obstacle of Zion is going to be he's going to be an obstacle for players in the NBA. That's you, you have seen just a little snippet of what he can do. This young man is nimble. If you look at his footwork, if you look at his balance, if you look at his spatial awareness on the court, it's absolutely uncanny because everybody is still just, you know, on the hype of the dunk and how high he can jump. This guy is going to continue to get better. He's going to reshape his body with the strength that he has. It's just a normal development of an 18, 19, 20 year old. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. And okay. So he came back and he already has numbers of hall of famers like uh, Russell and Abdul Jabbar and his shooting percentage and, you know, being able to be efficient at the rim. And it's, it's pretty unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I know people were trying to stop him and they're going, He's lefty. Don't let him go left. It's this way. And he just powers you to the rim. And he's got incredible touch. But he's a really great guy. And he's got an amazing family. And it's going to be a really plum job for whoever gets that.
1: Yeah, that'll be a fun fun job. And uh, those guys like the Suns, two teams that missed the bubble. But man, the upside is incredible. Yeah, that'll be fun.
2: Well, Monty Williams. Oh my Lord. He's just, he's incredible when he was coaching the Pelicans and you know, he came through pop system, Mm -hmm. the pop tree, but Monty is a great defensive coach and really your defense fuels your offense. And you saw that, you know, maybe next to the Mavericks, they had one of the the best offenses in the league. And that's why the Mavericks really struggled playing against Phoenix because Mm -hmm. they're professional shot makers I think that they're the better team. I know people go like, what is she talking about? They're better than the Clippers. Their bench is better than the Clippers. And it's kind of reminiscent of the 2011 championship team. They're good passers. Mm -hmm. They understand spacing. Your bigs can shoot the three, which opens up the court. Luca is a future Hall of Famer in year two. (laughs) He's unbelievable. And, And nobody can stop him. And he knows that. Oh, by the way, you know that too.
1: No one can stop him, including Kawhi Leonard, man. He put a shoulder into Kawhi. I've never, you don't see that very often. And he moved him to where he wanted him. He's an incredible young player.
2: I call him the manipulator. You think you're pushing him to where you want him on the floor. And as that's unfolding, he's putting you exactly where he wants you. He has moves. You take away his move. He has counter moves. You take away his counter move. He's got something else. He's unbelievable.
1: Yeah. Fun to watch. I like it. Yes.
0: Nancy, in addition to broadcasting, you've been very active in growing the game of basketball. You've also been very active in inclusion, as you mentioned, with you know playing the game with people who maybe don't look like you or don't come from where you come from. Tell us a little bit about the Nancy Lieberman Foundation and just all of the things that are happening off the court with that enterprise.
2: Well, you know, I didn't just wake up at 50 years old and, and have done well and go, you know what? I got to really be a nicer person. I need to be a giver, not a taker. I didn't wake up with that moment of clarity. I was that kid. I was the poor kid from New York City with no father and no food and no heat and one grandparent away from food stamps. I hated my childhood. I was angry. I was was tired of being in fistfights for people making fun of me because I didn't have the right shoes. I had holes in my shoes. I didn't have book bags. And I didn't have, unfortunately, conflict resolution. So if you made fun of me enough and you caught me on a bad day, I would just get in a fistfight and, and beat you up. I know it sounds crazy, but that's how I felt. I'm not a victim. I'm a victor. You know, when I went to the Olympic trials in 1974 for the USA trials, I didn't have money to go on the plane to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And my softball coach in high school took a a can of corn, opened it, cleaned it, and put an envelope that says we're endeavoring to raise $300 to send Nancy to the USA tryouts. That can went door to door in my neighborhood. And people put in change, fives, tens, ones. I don't even know who put money in there. I wish I could thank the people because maybe we're not doing this podcast without people's kindness and generosity. And I knew as I started to become a professional athlete that there's a lot of people out there like me who were hopeless and helpless. There were days I had tremendous depression and anxiety because I got tired of, what's wrong with you? You know, you're a tomboy, why can't you be a girl? I'm actually not even embarrassed to say that. I just got tired of people telling me what I couldn't be and all the Nancy Camp moments in my life. So I become a professional athlete. I'm starting to make money. I get here to Dallas at 22 years old and I was starting to get paid. And so literally I didn't know anything about 501 C3s, but I would take a, a black gym bag and I would put 15, $20,000 in the gym bag cash and I'd knock on people's doors. And I was like, Hey, can I help you? do you need food? Do you need to pay your rent? Do you have electricity? And uh, that's why I have uh, obviously a deep affection and love, uh, you know, for the black community, because they've been so good to me and I wanted to be good to them and help where I can. And so that's why Nancy Lehman Charities, uh, we are a 501c3. We've raised over $6 million the last eight, nine years, we've sent 70 high school seniors to college under uh, underserved kids. We've built over 90 dream courts, basketball courts, which became my safe haven because you can no longer insult me. You can no longer make fun of me if I was on that court, because when you said, we'll take the girl when we were picking teams, it was almost like saying you love me. The things that I wasn't getting at home as a child, I got from the guys because of the respect, you know, uh, just how you could play football, baseball, basketball. So it was really important for me to just help people. And then when I met Muhammad Ali in uh, December of 79, he knew that I was full of crap. He knew that I was fragile. And he was like, there'll never be a day that I won't be in your life. He was amazing. And he taught me about racism. He taught me about, you know, like how the black community feels, what makes them sad, what makes them happy, uh, things in history that have been, you know, really damaging. He taught me so much at 19. I I was spinning because I can't believe I'm with Muhammad Ali. And then he gives me his address and he gives me his home phone. I'm like, oh, my gosh, my hero, the man that I love. And here I am. And he's saying, there'll never be a day that I won't be in your life. He, he taught me how to be a, a true champion. And, you know, I remember one day he looked at me and he goes, you know, God made you special. And I was like, you know, God too? <laughs> you know, everybody. It's amazing. <laughs> and he's like, oh, no, I gotta, I gotta handle this white because <laughs> she, she don't get herself in trouble. And we just had this amazing relationship for, you know, whatever, since 79 and until four years ago when he died. And it's amazing how, things changed. Like anytime I had a big decision in my career, I would go, yeah, Mr. Muhammad, uh, these people want me to do this, or I possibly can do that. And he'd give me his advice. And those moments that I had with him and his kindness and the things that he taught me, because I'm not who I am without his influence in my life. And he kept saying, Nancy, there's there's two people in life. There's there's givers and there's takers. I, I need you to be the giver. Help people who can't help themselves. You know, and that's what I do. You know, we we look for people who need us. I'm not afraid. Okay, right. I'm not afraid. So I'm not afraid to go in into the hood. I'm very comfortable there. I'm not afraid uh, to to see what people need, whether it's it's dream courts or educational programs or iPads or computers. That's what Nancy Lehman Charities is. We're, we're a children's charity. And we have over 4 million kids right now using our dream courts and on a safe place to play, to make friends, to, to compete. You know, if you're if you're on a basketball court, football field, baseball, we're critical thinkers. We were stem before stem became a thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I, I know the science of basketball. I know the engineering of a basketball court. I understand inertia. I'm a critical thinker in real time. I learned that from sports.
0: That's great. Well, Nancy, we I think we could talk to you all day, but I imagine um, you sure. have things to do. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but we appreciate the time very much. It's been a, a real honor to meet you and to spend some time with you. So thanks very much for being on Putting Up Numbers. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, all right. Nancy. Have a great Bye. day. All right. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the time we spent with Nancy Lieberman. And that is it for this 10 extra edition of Putting Up Numbers. Our thanks again to Nancy Lieberman. Remember, you can find show notes and more at our website, puttingupnumbers.com. Please tell your friends to listen, rate, subscribe, and review. We'll be back with another edition very soon. Until then, I'm Tom Davis. I'm Rudy Clannick. And we'll see you next time on Putting Up Numbers.